Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. On Monday, we're back after missing for Memorial Day. Last, yes. Last Monday, we're yeah. back today. Glad to be with all of you all. Back in Mark. Really? Back, yeah. in, back into Mark. Jesus is going to walk on water today. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, this will be good. And um, what's up? Where you been, Patty? I've been to Universal Studios in Orlando. And why Scott. did you go to Universal Studios, <laughs> Patty? Because our son, Matt, and Courtney were going and taking their two boys, 12 and 15. And we just said... Hey, do and, you mind and, if we come? And, and oh, Nate's girlfriend. Nate's girlfriend. Leilani. Leilani, who they was took her too. lovely. Yes. She is lovely. She's yes. a lovely girl. We, had a, yes. we really had a fun time. We walked so many steps. We both definitely walked more steps than we had since COVID. Yeah, Easy. and it was, of course, even though it was still early in the year, really, it was pretty warm and humid down there. It's just very... The humidity is It just gets awful. very close feeling, yes. I call it. Right? We had such a but good we had time. We made lots of wonderful memories. Yeah. They were actually going for five days, and we just horned in for two. Yep. So we flew down Wednesday and went to the parks with them Thursday and Friday and came home. we came home on... Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But it was a lot of fun. We're both really glad we went. Um, Scott rode everything, and I do mean everything. All the ones that have like all the the list of warnings why you shouldn't go on this ride because it's horrible. Scott went yeah. on them. <laughs> Not only did I ride Hulk, I rode the new, the brand new, the new new Velocicoaster. Yes. Which down at the at the bottom of one of the corkscrews, it's over water, and you would swear your head was no more than five feet off the water. And I'm sure it was probably more like ten, but you're right down you're there. Because you're face down, right? Or yeah, you're you're upside down, and your yes. your hair and head are just there's the water like right there. Yes. And yeah, it was it was it was I fun. Set that I, one I was out. the only granddad, I think, <laughs> actually sure. on this ride. <laughs> we were like two of, of course, you can imagine it was packed, <clears throat> but we were two of the oldest people there. Not we, you, dear. Well, yes, yeah, but. Really, we did great. We had a fun time. Um, as I said, you know, Scott being an Air Force pilot, he does every ride anywhere for the State Fair. And it's the most twisty, ridiculous-looking thing. And all that is on it are kids under 15. I always can find my little husband's legs dangling amongst everybody <laughs> Fun. It, I will admit, it's a lot harder on the body than it was 50 years ago. Absolutely. Which is how long ago I was flying yes. jet airplanes. So, yes. yeah. So it, 50 years is actually a long yes. time. But he doesn't get sick on any of that <laughs> no. stuff. So, it's not bad, though. I waited out in air conditioning, you know, with my daughter-in-law. Yeah, had a nice chat. Drinking Diet and Coke and yeah, staying cool. It was fun. It was fun. And we're back here now. We are looking forward to today. We are. And always looking forward to Monday. So we have made our summer plans, Patty and I have. So let me show you. These are the dates that we will not have class. Three Mondays in July, July 10th, 17th, and 24th. It's just the way they fall. We're going away for about two and a half weeks. Um, it is our 25th anniversary. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow, tomorrow 25th anniversary tomorrow. And um, we are going on um, a cruise up in Norway. Yes. Two-week cruise. Two-week so, cruise. Well, it would be nice and cool. 
And Scott won't have to worry about getting overheated at all. There will be no Velocicoaster. There will be no coaster. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a beautiful place to go. It is. And we like going to cool places like that when we it's spent summertime two, here. Two and weeks ago. Two, um, we spent a, two weeks there about four years ago. Yeah, and uh, we just yeah, loved it. We, and it's one of those things we didn't know if we'd ever have the opportunity to go back. But we did. And... Because Patty is, if you want to know anything about how to find a bargain cruise, talk to Miss Patty. Because she has an eye for finding that one cruise offered during the summer that is yes. strangely, strangely cheap compared to anything else. It's not really a lot of magic. It's a lot of searching. <laughs> yeah, I get a that. A lot true. of searching. But um, anyway, it, yeah. They're so, out there. They're out they there. They are I mean, out there. Beautiful ships. Hard to know why. Veranda rooms. Cruises, but, you know, yeah. all of it. And, yep. So, yep. okay. We're good. But We're we won't be walking on water, will we? We will on not. <laughs> we will not be walking on water. <laughs> okay. How about if, how about if for praise to get us started? I think you better start. Better, They're getting huh? bored, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. Grateful to be back. We weren't here together last Monday. We are grateful to be here today to resume our our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we pray as we do every time when we gather for this study that your Holy Spirit will open up these pages for us, that you will fill us with energy and enthusiasm and, and take us to a deeper place in our understanding of, of the Gospel, the good news, and um, so that we may uh, continue to grow as ever truer disciples of Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. Okie doke. Going back over to the other side. All right. Walking on the ground. Over to the other side. So let me just do a few words of introduction. Um, we are in the sixth chapter of Mark, and last two weeks ago, if I say last week a few times, you know what I mean. So two weeks ago, um, we spent most of the time in the story of the loaves and the fishes, the multiplication of the loaves, this, this story that is the only, I'll call it miracle, the only miracle event that is in all four Gospels. John has all different miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, except for this one, the loaves and fishes. And as in Matthew, the loaves and fishes is followed by the story we're coming to today. So, you know, there's there's probably, um, since Mark does arrange things, of course, the way he wants to, to try to make his point, um, Mark is going to be making a point today. And as we'll see, there is, um, Mark helps us to see the growing revelation of who Jesus is as well as a growing opposition to Jesus. That's two of the themes that we've, we've tried to keep our eye on in this. So why don't we go ahead with that and go ahead and turn to chapter um, 6, verse 45. So we are just finishing up the loaves and fishes. And so Jesus is still on somewhere on that eastern shore, northeastern shore, somewhere there don't really know we get uptight about that it's mark is not concerned about those kinds of things it's not why he's giving us this gospel is for us to work out all the geography of it 
But anyway, so 45, so immediately, very marked, very marked to, to say, immediately after um, uh, finishing uh, dividing the food amongst the thousands and thousands of people, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. That's how they had traveled to this shoreline where they, the miracle happened and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. So I brought a map. Uh, let's see. So just to refresh your memory, Bethsaida is right there at the top. Okay? That arrow is illustrating a possible boat journey. It will strike you as odd because the whole thing's over land. <laughs> well, the reason is because today the ain't the 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 um, the land the shoreline is further out. So Bethsaida was on the shore back in Jesus's day, but now it's a little bit inland. When you I've been there one time, and when you go there, you know you can see a few miles away the Sea of Galilee. But so they are they are going to make this trip now. As I said just a moment ago, the geography thing is ch challenging here, and we get too uptight about it. Because um, if you just read this whole thing, and you just take it at face value, it doesn't seem to make much sense. But Mark, of course, makes sense. He knows what he's writing, right? I mean, he's, he's a smart guy. So... One thing to know is that when, if you look at verse 45 in that first part where it says, go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, it's probably better to say he that they're going to go toward Bethsaida. The word there is a word more about direction than destination. So they're sailing up, but they are going to run into trouble, which may explain the geographic reference at the end of the story, but we'll see. So immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Beth toward, how about that, toward Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went on a mountainside to pray. And he does that so often. What he is doing is taxing. Um, he is making his way forward through this vocation that God has given him to be for Israel what Israel would not be for themselves. And if we only see Jesus as walking around with two feet off the ground, he's, you know, that's, that's, that, that, that's robbing him of his humanity. He is fully human and fully divine. And you can't pull those things apart and they're not separable. They is fully human and fully divine. And so the crowds are taxing to him. Um, there's a lot about this that would be taxing to any human. Any human. If, if you take that away from Jesus, you make him less than human, I think. And he's not less than human. He's fully human. He's the most human ever, person ever. When we're at our very best we're being our most human and 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 he is he's the best of us so he dismisses the crowd he leaves them he goes up on a mountainside a hillside there to pray well verse 47 later that night some hours have passed now the boat was in the middle of the lake 
and he was alone on the land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars. They're really not getting anywhere because the wind was against them. So the wind is coming out. The wind is against them. They're trying to, to, to make their way into the wind. And there's a little boat that I brought pictures of a few weeks ago, those first century fishing boats. They're using oars, probably more like paddles, to, to try to get somewhere. And um, shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake, walking on the water, walking on the Sea of Galilee. He was, I love this next part. He was about to pass by them. <laughs> right? You ever notice that was in there in Mark? Yeah, he was about to pass by them. Right? He's just going to let them do their thing. <laughs> and he was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. They were freaked out. There is Jesus, you know. He's walking casually on the water. This is one old um, woodprint of Jesus walking on the water. Kind of, kind of a famous one. Um, that... It's a fair depiction of the boat, I guess. They might be able to get two sails up on, on their center mast there. But he is walking on the water. He's passing them by. That's so great. Um, but they think he's a ghost. So there's a little thing right there in your mind to tuck away. Well, has any of us ever seen somebody walking no, on water? No, At night in no. a storm? <laughs> and these people come up with some sort of reasonable, logical explanation. Something has happened to Jesus back there, and now he's dead, and they are seeing his ghost. So these ancient people knew what they meant when they said ghosts, um, which were people um, sort of returned from the grave in some way, in some spiritual, ephemeral form, um, uh, ghostly form. It's it's like it's used when Peter knocks in Acts twelve, maybe Peter knocks on the door um, where the uh, apostles, some apostles are gathered, and they think he's dead, really. And so Rhoda, Rhoda, that's her name, goes the the maid servant in the house goes to the door and opens it. She comes back and she says it's Peter. Their first reaction, because they think he's dead, is that it's his ghost. Okay? In Luke 24, when Jesus shows up after his resurrection, what's their first reaction to seeing Jesus? It's his ghost. Right? So, here they think they've seen him, they see his ghost. And they cry out because they all saw him and they were all terrified. You can bet they were. We would be, you and I would be freaked out at this moment. And so, immediately... He spoke to them, yelled out to them, I'm sure, and said, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. Another favorite Mark word. They were completely amazed. And why were they amazed? He had already stilled the storm. That was a couple chapters ago, right? Remember that story? He 
the the he's asleep in the back of the boat and the wind comes up and the waves are up and the disciples are freaking out again and they wake him up and I kind of see him kind of, just kind of nodding his head and he goes out and he stills the, the the storm and at that moment they fell down at his feet and worship him as how Mark puts it in this case they just don't they do not understand yet who they are with even after the loaves and fishes maybe that's why these two stories are, are connected um, the loaves and the fish maybe they just happened back to back but Mark certainly could have done something else with them they but they don't get it it is this is this ongoing tale in Mark that the disciples do not understand that Jesus is Messiah and more right but you have to get to Messiah before you can get to any any further any you know genuine divinity or anything like that that and 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 they just can't see it and they don't get it and they don't understand for they had not understood about the loaves verse 52 and their hearts were hardened what that means is oh wow what does that mean it means that they have spent a lifetime building up really good defenses and really good explanations for things that in this case keep Jesus out and I think that is something that people are so inclined to do there are many people who won't give Jesus even half a chance a quarter of a chance an eighth of a chance because they spent so much of their life building up defenses against surrendering to Jesus or submitting to Jesus or the kind of words that nobody wants to speak of to themselves uh, to to admit that they are not as the famous poem remember the famous poem Invictus I am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul something like that mm -hmm. for so many people they don't want to give that up and so they have all these defenses some they're aware of many that are subconscious and their hearts are hardened and and in this case even the disciples they've spent their whole life expecting the Messiah to come in power and might and wonder and glory and Jesus is this guy from Nazareth and he's just like them he eats like them you know he walks like them he sleeps like them he urinates like them you know it it he's he's he can do miraculous things but for people in this world there were more than a few folks who were seen as doing miraculous things okay so so get that but they 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 just can't really see it and their hearts are hardened it's just they, they've just got this big layer of of defensive shields up about it so that's about the best way I think I can put it and if you if you understand that it makes us more I have a lot of sympathy for the disciples in their blindness I don't know 
I am sure hesitant to say that I would have done better. I think we have to be careful about that. That we can, here we are 2,000 years later, we got Bibles and Bible study and classes and preachers and all the rest of it. It's easy to look at the disciples and say, oh my gosh, these people were idiots. We would have done so much better. But I don't think that's fair. Um, Jesus is not matching up to the expectation that people had for Messiah. And so, that comes to a head when? Wow. When, when he ends up beaten and crucified. That, that, that's in nobody's playbook. Nobody's dictionary under the Messiah. It's just not there. So, anyway, this it's sometimes called the Mark, Mark's messianic secret in this. Um, and I think it is that Mark wants us to grasp that the disciples aren't getting it. Okay, so now, any thoughts about the about the uh, water walking there? Notice, let me ask you, what's missing in this in Mark's story? Um, Since we just preached this a few weeks ago, Peter walking out on yeah, the water. Yeah, exactly. That's missing here. Is it that interesting? I find that particularly interesting because I'm, I think Richard Balkum and others get it right when they say the essence of this, the underlying structure of this gospel is Peter's testimony. And maybe he left that part out. I, I, I don't know. You, you know, you would think if he did that, he would leave out the part about his denying Jesus three times, but he doesn't do that. So I, I don't know. It's a hard, it's a hard thing. But um, it is it is a it is a key difference between this story and the way and the longer story that is told in Matthew, the one that we preached on a few weeks ago when we were looking at the life of Peter. Okay, so. Verse 53. So I have a question. Yeah, sure. So I know I've heard you say that you think Mark's gospel might actually be Peter's testimony. Yes. Do you think then that there's a reason, that that is the reason that maybe Peter was embarrassed about his lack of faith? Yeah, but you'd think he would be even, he would be embarrassed about his denying Jesus three times and leave that out. This is a big thing. He walked on water for a few minutes. If he is the writer of this, there had to be a reason. Well, Peter probably didn't write this. No, no, right. John was, Mark wrote it. Yes. After spending a lot of years with Peter, with Peter. and hearing okay. these stories being, it's so, just yeah, fascinating might, yes. that it's that it's not there. And yes, yes. Maybe because maybe in the way Peter told about Jesus, he concentrated on the story of stilling the storm, uh, and not so much the story. And so Mark got got this from somewhere else. I don't know. You could speculate about things forever, couldn't you, honey? Yep. But it's just interesting that that story about Peter sinking below the waves is not here. Okay, so, 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret? Huh? And anchored there. The reason I say a huh <laughs> is because Gennesaret is where that long arrow is pointing to. It is the large plains, that large green area between Capernaum and Tiberias. 
So if they started out heading toward Bethsaida, how did they end up in Gennesaret? Well, lots of explanations have been offered. I think the simplest one that goes most easily with the story is that they were having great trouble handling the boat and getting it where they needed it to be as they were straining against the oars and the wind is taking charge and they are blown westward and Jesus gets into the boat and Jesus basically says, well, let's just go back across. Doesn't say that, but, you know, it never says everything I'd want to know in any of these stories. So, I don't know. Anyway, where we find ourselves now is back at Gennesaro, which means we are we are over there, right in the heart of this of of the Jewish area, um, that is between Capernaum and and Tiberias. And there they anchor and put their boat down and they get out. Okay, mm-hmm. so verse fifty four. Sure enough, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. You know. I guess he's done enough now by this point that almost anywhere he goes on the western side, there are people who have seen him before in the crowds. The crowds who have heard him preach and the crowds who have heard him heal. And um, there are people there who recognize him because it's not like there's photos or anything floating around, but there are there are people. And there were people who recognized him. And they ran throughout that whole region. You know, they, of course, they told everybody. They carried the sick on mats wherever they heard he was. It's, it's, this, it's this endlessly repeated story of the crowds finding Jesus, chasing after Jesus, because they're, they're desperate. These are people who live, liter- literally, they live hand to mouth. They live on subsistence diets. They don't have, they really don't have anything substantial in the way of medicine and, and so forth. They, they have herbs and plants and some stuff like that. But you and I would be appalled if we went back and we found, found all the things that they don't have access to in order to heal and take care of people. So there's, there's just so much desperation. And so they carried the second mats to wherever they heard Jesus was and wherever he went, into villages and towns and countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, in these places that can't be missed. They don't hide them. They put them right out there. In these, you know, and these, these towns were arranged in such a way that it, you, you, you've probably seen some of them. You know, you would have the little homes and stuff. It's still done this way. And you would have a little town center, a little town marketplace in the center of things. And they put the sick there and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. Hearkening back um, a little earlier in the gospel to the woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and reaches through the crowds and, and on her hands and knees and touches Jesus' cloak and is healed. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. This, this, there's this, just like this burgeoning 
revelation. What what revelation is? Um, re uh, revelation is something that you would not understand if it wasn't shown to you or explained to you. If it's a revelation, if it's revelation, it's not something you're going to figure out on your own. That's something different. This is kind of, revelation is like um, the curtains pulled back and now you can see the truth. So the Bible is God's revelation of himself because we would never come up with a God who would take on human flesh and be born to a probably 14-year-old girl from a dusty village in, in Galilee. And so this is this is this burgeoning growing revelation of who Jesus is that's going to push past his messiahship right it's going to push past his messiahship and and more and more people are seeing it and and they're putting their faith in Jesus. When I say they put their faith in Jesus, do I mean they understand this and they subscribe to the right kind of doctrine? No, they trust him. They trust him that when they come to him, that he has the power to heal them. You may use another word. He has the power to save them. Right? Um... And I'm using those two words as, as synonyms because when Jesus heals somebody, it's about healing their, not just the physical ailment they have, but the, their whole sense. Think back to chapter 2 when the fellow was lowered by his friends through the, through the roof. What does Jesus say? You know, your sins have been forgiven. And the physical healing is, goes with that. He's been healed holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's been healed holy. Um, okay. Anything from anybody out there? Well, everybody's quite quiet. How about today. you, Patty? No, I don't have really anything to add. So. Okay. Now, so we've been seeing in the loaves of the fishes and in the walking in the water and all the healings that are just, just touch his cloak. Let me just touch his cloak and boom, the healings are just flowing out there. We see this growing revelation of who Jesus is. Now we're going to see the growing opposition to Jesus, which we have seen plenty of, not for a little while in the Gospels, but now it's going to be back. And so we can bring the earlier context with us that there, that the, the, the Jewish leaders, um, the priests would, would stay in Jerusalem, but the Jewish leaders who would move around, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes slash teachers of the law, um, they they are going to make some trips up to check up on Jesus. And they represent this growing opposition to him because he threatens the status quo. If you're on top of the world, you don't necessarily want the world to be turned upside down in the coming of the kingdom of God. So, Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, those are scribes, who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They're there continuing to check him out. Right? 
and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Hmm. Well, I usually wash up before meals. Have I eaten meals where I didn't wash my hands first? Quite sure of that. His disciples are eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. This has nothing to do with sanitation. Okay? These people don't know anything about germs, bacteria, any of that stuff. So, Mark is going to provide to the Gentile readers, <laughs> like you and me, an explanation. So, that tells us that Mark comprehends that his gospel is going to be read by many, many Gentiles. It's probably written mainly with Gentiles in mind. So, we get this parenthesis, this explanation of what the heck he's talking about. Hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So, verse 3. Now, the Pharisees... And all of the Jews, this was a practice by some or all of the Jews of Jesus' day, do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. So this is about purity. The ceremonial washing is, oh yeah. There I go. I'm still here actually. <laughs> I just wanted people <laughs> Batty to Batty was giving me hand signals <laughs> saying, We've probably seen enough of the map. So, all right. So the Pharisees, see, because I'm looking at the Bible, not the map. So the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. All right. So the hand washing is ceremonial. So that means it's about what? Purity. Cleansing. Cleansing of sin. Making yourself ready to come before God. That's the sense of it. It's not about washing away germs or bacteria. It is, it, the Jews did lots of ceremonial washing. They had, if, if they had a home suitable for it, and they, in, in the ground below, they had a mikvah, a place where they could have running water running through this mikvah where they would step down into it and wash themselves. You, I, you, I've seen one of those in Sepphoris. The ruins of Sepphoris is a town about um, four miles from from Nazareth, and sure enough, right there's a mikvah. You take some steps down, and you can see where the water would run through. Um, it, the water that Jesus turns into wine in Cana, that's water for ceremonial washing. So the Jews do this, and it's according to the tradition of the elders. Now that's a key phrase. Because it isn't something that you find in the Law of Moses. It's part of the interpretation of the Law of Moses and the practices that were adopted by Jews and by the leaders and by the Pharisees and, and so forth. Okay? Scott Muller says in her study Bible, it says in quotes, marketplace where Jews would come in contact with Gentiles, thus the need to wash. Good point. Yes, good point. I should have made that point. A marketplace, there, there are more Gentiles than you think in these places. There were a lot of towns in Galilee and, and particularly Judea that had a decent number of Gentiles. So anywhere they came into con contact with Gentiles, they would need to be washed. But this is really an every meal thing. It's not, I don't think it's really, what I got out of my reading about this was it really wasn't just about 
this one occasion. It's just about his disciples are not doing what Jews do. This is what we do. We wash. Sure, could there be instances when they couldn't? Sure. But, but, but this wouldn't um, be one of them. But the point is, it's not coming directly from Torah, directly from the Law of Moses. It's just one of the traditions that they have. One of the traditions that they have. So verse 4. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. To go to Mona's point. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Now the cups and pitchers and kettles hadn't been to the marketplace. It is all what the big point is. It's all about this, this purity, right? Now let me, and so the question is, what is, what, what is true purity? If you wash your hands, whether you've come into contact with Gentiles or not, or your cups, or your kettles, or your dishes, or what, does that make you pure? Even if you come into contact with Gentiles and you wash your hands, is that, is that, does that make you pure? Because you run hand, your hands under water? Patty's over there under her breath going, no. Because she's a Jesus person, you see. <laughs> But that's what they did, and and Mark is cool because he helps us understand what's happening here. Because without it, we would probably get lost in this story. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, to picking up this conversation again, asked Jesus, well, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? We all do it. What's wrong with you? What kind of disciples do you have? Aren't you a proper rabbi? Don't you just teach your disciples properly? Instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Well, the, you can, it's, it's, you know, the words themselves are not accusatory, but of course, in context, you know it is. The context coming from everything that's been happening in Mark's gospel you know they're after Jesus, right? Right. It's always like they're just looking for one more. They're thing. looking for something. They're, they're looking for list. something. How about this? How about this? Going all the way back to chapter two, when when you know, who is this to forgive sins, right? So when when the man is lowered through the ceiling, so here is Jesus's reply to the Pharisees, and he is pretty direct. And pretty harsh himself, he says. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Right? So Jesus understands what's happening, not surprisingly. That these are not innocent. You know, just inquiring about, oh, I just was wondering, like, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Mm. No, they've all got a finger pointing at Jesus. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about, prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So connect up those human rules with the earlier phrase about the traditions of the elders. Those are human rules, human interpretations, human regulations. 
They are not inscribed in the law of Moses. Okay? So Jesus goes on. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You are wed to these rules that you've created over a long period of time. And it's caused you to be, um, I'm not reading scripture, obviously. Um, it's, it's caused them to be blind to what the law is really about. And that's where Jesus is trying to take them. He's going to try to take them to what the law is really about. So Jesus goes on. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Exclamation point. For Moses said, here we go. Moses said, that means it's coming from Torah. Honor your mother and father. Your father and mother. <laughs> Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Wow, yes, every time I teach Exodus, <clears throat> that is people a point where people go, wow, that's the punishment that goes with breaking that commandment. Okay? So, but those, the key is that they are from the law of Moses. They are from Torah. They aren't part of the 617 rules that make up the Mishnah that I think Arthur even was talking about yesterday. Then Jesus goes on, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, oh man, Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. So that takes more explanation than Mark gives us. So, Corbin is the practice instituted by the temple priests and supported by the Pharisees and the scribes that you could take a portion of your land, your homes, whatever, and you could dedicate them to the temple. And they couldn't be used for anything except that. Um, but it wouldn't, they wouldn't actually go to the temple until, this was unclear, until they passed, I believe. Okay? Scholars don't even agree about the degree to which this is actually being practiced in Jesus' day because what it had become in Jesus' day was a way to get around taking care of mom and dad because the son would take his wealth or some portion of his wealth and dedicate it to the temple but not actually give it to the temple yet but once that was done, he couldn't use it to, he could say, well, I'm sorry, sorry, Pops, I can't, I, I, I know you're destitute, but my money's all going to the temple here. 
I, I can't help you. And so I was thinking about that, and I was trying to come up with an analogy. It seemed to me it was kind of like making a pledge. Maybe a, maybe a pledge to the endowment fund. Right, so you make a pledge to the endowment fund for some substantial portion of the wealth to go to the endowment fund when you pass. And then circumstances really change, and you're you're worse off. Mom and dad are going destitute, you know, but you can say, well, mom and dad, I really can't help you because I made this pledge, and I made this pledge to God, and I have to keep this pledge to God, so, you know, too bad for you. <clears throat> and we know that in later tradition of the rabbis, there were mechanisms put in place to prevent this. Because you can see, just sitting here right now, that that's wrong, right? If you're, is, Would God prefer you to keep a pledge you've made to the church rather than take care of your mother and father? What do you think, Patty? No, of course not. It's, no, of course not. It reminds not. me of some of the oaths that people have made. Ah, see, and then, yes. Right? Then That's good. It's like they hold true to their oath, but how ridiculous it was. I mean, one, right, as far as uh, having to kill his own young daughter because of a stupid oath that the man Right, made. Jabeth's daughter, yes. Book of Judges. He makes a stupid oath. Um, Saul makes a stupid oath and is committed to... Killing his own son until the troops saved Jonathan, we we make stupid oaths. We don't under, we don't stop and think about what God really wants. And of course, for Jesus, what God wants is for you to honor your mother and father, and to keep God's name sacred, and to not bear false witness, and the rest of it. So Jesus is bringing up that the Pharisees and scribes and priests have this way of seeming to be devoted to God, but it's really a way to be able to screw mom and dad. Yeah. That makes sense? That's what that's what's going on. So I did reading on this. It's a little bit confusing, but that's the essence of what's going on. Is that word Corbin used anywhere else in the Bible? That I don't think read? so. Oh. I don't think so. I think it's just a word that just had to come in. Um, I think it's probably, uh, I'm going to guess, a Hebrew word, maybe an Aramaic word, um, have been used to help their father or mother as Corbin. That is, what it means is devoted to God. So you've made that pledge. That's where I got, up, that's where I got that analogy. You're devoting that wealth to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother because you're going to hold them to that pledge. Thus, Jesus says, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Many things like what? You've created these human ways that blind you to what it means to love God and love neighbor. Such as, <laughs> right? Tearing into Jesus because he has the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath. And they've decided that's work, and that's a violation of the Sabbath. But it doesn't say that. 
It just says keep the Sabbath holy. Well, you know, why should a crippled person wait another day? So Jesus heals them. That's holy work. So he's just saying they're a bunch of hypocrites. They've built all these human laws and traditions. And guess what they really do? They really work to the benefit of the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes. Because those men are like we are. They have their own interests at heart. They don't really know what it means to love God and love neighbor. And with respect to purity, they are focused on this washing of the hands or the cups, the kettles, and the rest of it. Whereas Jesus now calls the crowd to him. And he says, and I imagine in a much louder voice, all the time while thinking he's got his eyes on the Pharisees. Looking at them, he's talking to the crowd. And he says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. So, what is that laying the groundwork for? What is that laying the groundwork for? What story did Arthur preach on yesterday? Somebody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's the story where where Peter sees the sheet filled with all the four-legged animals and God just says, eat it all. Pigs, shrimp. How many times yesterday did Arthur talk about bacon-wrapped shrimp dipped in butter? I must say, that is not appealing to me. BLTs, though. Yes, BLTs. Excellent. So, so it, see, it's setting the stage for breaking down the food laws. Right? They had served. It's not that the food laws were bad in of themselves. They were boundary markers. They were something that set the Jews apart from the Gentile world around them. The Jews were the ones who didn't eat shrimp and they didn't eat pork and they did had all the other things about the food that they ate. But that day is past with the coming of Jesus. And that is what the Christians, the first Jesus followers, will wrestle with and come to understand that indeed the Gentiles could come fully into this movement, into the kingdom, without keeping the food laws and the other Jewish laws. So Jesus says, it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. And of course, what else can we take from that if you are preaching this? It is that it is the tongue. It is what's inside of us that does so much damage. Yes. Right? What comes out of us so often? Well, envy, lust, greed, all the that stuff is all born within us. Um so it's a famous, it's a famous line. You know, it's a little bit confusing leading up to it, but it's a fa it's a famous piece here. 
Listen to me, everyone, and understand this, Jesus says. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. I'm just keep thinking of the book of James, where James is talking about the tongue, about the mouth, about the words we say, the things we say that are hurtful and destroying, and are, they devour like fire. It's not what goes in, Jesus says. It's what comes out. Well, it sets the stage for that. And you know the Pharisees are just aghast. They're aghast. Their whole existence with the scribes, you know, the Pharisees are so focused on everybody keeping the covenant with God, but layering all this stuff on top of Torah and not even paying attention to the essence of Torah. And you know they're just aghast. The scribes are aghast. The priests will be aghast when they find out about this. It's just one more demonstration that they've been leading Israel in exactly the wrong direction. The keeping of these human traditions rather than in the really rather straightforward commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself and in those finding the true intent of God's law. So, just in case we missed it. Okay, anyway, verse 17. That's where I am. Okay. Notice verse 16 is missing. Yes. <laughs> you see? Yes. There's nothing there in verse 16. That's because when the New Testament was divided into chapters and verses hundreds and hundreds of years ago, pre-King James, there was something there. And then there was something there in the King James. But we now have many, many more manuscripts, and we are confident, confident that verse 16, which is really only let those who have ears hear kind of thing, that it just wasn't there in the original Mark. So almost almost all of the translations just leave it out and footnote it down at the bottom of the page. So, verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? <sighs> you know. He was being nice using the dull I, word. <laughs> is it? Is it somehow like not Jesus to get frustrated? Is it? You know, isn't fr getting frustrated a common human experience? And I was saying he was being nice using the word dull and not stupid or. <laughs> Something. Well, we can, I'd, I'd have to look at the exact Greek there to see what, what the word is. I, I don't know what the exact word is, but are you so dull? Are you? And I don't think, it's not sinful to be frustrated with somebody. It's not sinful. That's just part of life. It's part of living. If you strip all of that away from us, would we be human even? What would we be? We'd be would be, ah, see, would be data. 
in Star Trek Next Generation. It'd be an AI. Right? Yes. He didn't have an emotion chip. Right. And it he he knew how any it was his great shortcoming. So yeah. So Jesus, yeah. Why are you so dull? Jesus says. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? All the purity hand washing and the cup washing and the kettle washing and all the rest of it, that's all great, but it does it's not what purity is. Purity is about purity of the heart, purity of your actions, purity of your behavior, living in a holy way, loving God, loving others, respecting other people, being kind and compassionate, putting their interests ahead of your own. That's what that's what purity is. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? Eat what you want. For it doesn't go into their heart, but just goes into their stomach and then out of the body. Like, you know what that means. In saying this, Mark explains to his Gentile readers, Jesus declared all foods clean. So Peter's, now Peter's, Peter went in, Arthur preached on Peter and Cornelius yesterday, Act 10, Act, Acts 10, and a little bit of 11. And that story of the conversion of Cornelius and the sheet coming down with all the animals in it and stuff, that happens probably 40, 41 AD. We're, uh, Mark is writing probably at least 20 years later at least 20 years later, okay? <clears throat> but it is Jesus who sets the stage for what will happen with Peter and Cornelius and as set the stage for what happens as the movement goes out into the Gentile world. Are, they gonna, are these new Christians going to have to keep the food laws? Are they going to have to be circumcised and the rest of it? And the answer, rightly, was no. It's a new thing that's happening. It's not a continuation of the old thing. It's a new thing that's happening. And sometimes um, people don't see the newness of this well enough. They don't see the newness of this woman, the big, the big profound change They'll want to draw it all as if you have like a little upward line and it's just a little smooth line and Jesus... No, it's this huge discontinuous break between before Jesus and after Jesus. And things are not the same after Jesus. So Jesus went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come and the behavior that follows, right? Sexual immorality. You, an older translation would say fornication. In the Greek, it is that word I talk about, pornia, P-O-R-N-E-I-A, pornia. And it is really, I think it's not limited to sexuality, though that's so much of it. It is, it is treating a person like an object rather than a person. Because it is, in the Greek world, it was so almost exclusively used with respect to prostitution. And in prostitution, um, you're 
yeah, the person's just an object for you to work out your desires or needs or whatever. It's not actually a real person. So, so sexual immorality, pornea, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and they defile a person. They make them impure, in, unholy. This separated from God. Notice how much this list looked like, looks like Paul's lists. You know, Paul makes lists of bad, he makes lists of good things, but he has these long lists of bad things. Well, Jesus has a list of bad things as well. Of course he does. That's because there's a lot of bad things that happen in this world. Like pornea, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person because they come from where? They come from this darkness in the human heart that defiles the image of God in which we are all made. This darkness in the human heart that defiles the image of God in which we are all made. And this is true of every single person. It's not something exclusive to Jews or Christians or Muslims or... It's everybody. It is part of the human condition since humanity rebelled against God and still every day, everywhere, all the time, still rebels against God because we want to put ourselves the center of everything. It's all about us in modern parlance. Okay, so, wow. So, hey there, Scott. Lauren has joined us. And, okay. Um, she, so I'm just getting everybody just a little yeah, bit of background. Tell them what she's doing. Lauren had been away with her parents and her husband, Creighton, to Europe for the last 10, 12 days or so and got back yesterday morning. I'm sure exhausted, but she was on a 5.30 bus to down to Waco. Houston. Houston, excuse Houston. me, this morning um, because N.T. Wright... Um, was going to be speaking there. So I just asked her how amazing it was. She was first, she was very sweet. She said, here late, N.T. Wright, then Scott Engel, back-to-back teachings, a dream day. That was very sweet, honey. She's putting you up there in N.T. Wright's group, I think. Yeah, well, she shouldn't, <laughs> but okay, thank you. So she said it was amazing, just fabulous, and I see why Scott loves him. Yeah, uh, he he's, is just, a he's not only really a great scholar, he's a great teacher. And a wise man. And so, you know. And I know I'm your wife, of yes. course. But I I think the reason that people enjoy him so much, because very much like you, he he does speak to people of um, who are not Bible scholars, who are just like all of us. Because you've heard him, Patty. People. You've yes. heard him at conferences that I, we've gone to I, in the he's past. He's just amazing. And it did remind me, I think Scott very much copied his style off of N.T. Wright to I did. explain things well, um, to help people understand the Bible, to never make anybody feel put down that they don't know something. Right. Always willing to ask, you know, answer questions. 
And uh, so, of course, he's here right now from England. So this was huge, and we are so glad that Lauren was able to go um, today, and I believe it's today and tomorrow. She'll be down there. So, um, yeah, looking for big. Yeah, she big was invited stuff. down there um, by Baylor because we are trying to deepen our connections to the seminary down at Baylor, Truett Seminary. Um, and I think we will be, we St. Andrew, okay? And Lauren will be a key piece of that. Yep. So, anyway, this is her first exposure to N.T. Wright live. I've had several in the course of the last 20 years, and it's just, you know... He's an important figure, and seems like a genuinely nice person. Yeah. Oh, every time I've heard him or seen him, shook his hand. He said, "Just one time, I went to a conference, and it was a kind of a small room that he was debating um, somebody about the resurrection. Of course, he wrote the big book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, um, providing so much evidence for the resurrection." and its meaning, and debating somebody who didn't really, a Christian, supposedly, who didn't believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. And um, I just went up to him after it was over and basically thanked him on behalf of all of St. Andrew for what he, you know, what he did, and I said, you've, you've, you've caused great, great changes at St. Andrew and uh, in, in Plano. So I'm real thrilled that Lauren wanted to you know was able to go down there and do this so anyway keep her in your prayers this week yes yes definitely. yeah so linda waldo says she's reading simply jesus and she sees a lot of quotes that scott uses yeah i don't even know what they are anymore there are certain ones i know i got from nt Wright, like um well <laughs> i was about to say dead dead and dead but i don't think that comes i don't think that see it's just that his whole way just became sort of my way and he had such a beautiful way of putting things um oh i remember what it was um lie that that we have this life a life after death and then a life after life after death is a way of speaking about our resurrection this life after life after death and that's directly from him but i i've listened to so many of his lectures um on cd and online and in person that it's just i can't separate it all out anymore and then i got my head filled with a lot of gordon fee and richard hayes and ellen cherry and all kinds of people but the dominant one is is nt wright he has this great accent of course yeah of course too. he's british and he's got a good voice and he's got his little beard and his tweed jacket, or <laughs> not always a tweed jacket, you know. I, you know, and sometimes he would be in collar because he's a bishop, he, um, in 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 the Church of England, and he was serving as an active bishop for a while in a bishopric that up in Durham that's really devoted to um, academia, and so anyway. So I think what we need to do there, do now, because we are at a, at a, at a story that is going to take a little bit of time because, boy, does Jesus say something that really kind of knocks people back a little, a little bit in this. So I think since it's 4.10, we should just end here.
today. And when we come back next week, we will pick up at Mark 24. And he's going. Jesus is going to go to someplace completely different. He's going to go, basically, <laughs> basically to the hometown of Jezebel. That's where he's headed, all the way up to the hometown of Jezebel, who was obviously the wife of um, King Ahab. That's right. Right. Yes. We all know she was. She was trouble. She was trouble with a capital T. <laughs> she was trouble, no doubt. So, okay, well, cool. Yes. Thank you yes. for all that, Patty, today. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. I guess we're going to close in prayer. We will see you tomorrow, those of you who can attend St. Andrew at 12 for Samuel. We're, yeah, we're, Samuel. So this is David and Saul again, and... and you know, in the particular story coming up, David's going to shine again. Yes. And then it's immediately followed by a much briefer story where David does not shine at all. You know, Scott, I hear you say every week, I know you love these stories because they are great stories, but what really makes them come alive is how you tell them. I, really I try to be a good storyteller because story I think teller. that's where the stories yeah. came from. Yeah. They came from, you know, Uncle Joshua or whomever, you know, around the campfire, right. entertaining people, telling these stories that, right. that, pre that preserved the past for the Israelites and were written down and, and edited and compiled by very skilled people. And in the book, whoever did the book of Samuel, some of them in they such really, detail. In such yes. detail, such detail. You'll be tomorrow you'll be surprised by some of the, some of the detail. Okay. That's in there. Wow. So, okay. So, of course, it's anyway. also online at noon tomorrow, and um, we'll be we'll be there. We'll, we'll be, be there. In Bible study on our twenty fifth anniversary. What a good oh, place to be. The of course we will. Yes, really, really, truly. <laughs> Let's close in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you again, God, for this opportunity on a Monday to study your Word, Lord. We are, we are truly grateful to hear the words of Jesus himself and to just understand him a little better, um, knowing how important this, this last section was to him, that it was repeated pretty much three times. This was something he really wanted to make a point on about that it's not what goes in, it's, it's what's in our hearts and, and um, you know, that 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 is the important thing not not the food or eating shrimp or bacon or anything else we just pray god that you would hold this group continue to hold us close together lord and bring us back together next monday to study your word we pray god that you would keep us healthy lord we pray for safety and we pray god for your wisdom and your discernment help us make good choices lord every day and it's in the name of your son jesus that we pray amen Amen. Okay, see you all when I see you. See you tomorrow, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Or Sunday. Or Sunday or whenever. Or, or at Gloria's. Who knows? <laughs> That's right. You <laughs> never know. Bye, everybody. Bye.